If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 this morning. And the text is printed there in the bulletin on the next page. And so um, we're going to pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we pray that you would give us life according to your word and teach us and make, us, uh, make your testimonies the joy of our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest Hebrew letter in the alphabet, a yod, looks like a little apostrophe, uh, not a dot, so the smallest part of a letter, like, like a dot on the letter I, uh, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So in our series in Matthew's gospel last week, uh, we heard Jesus call his people salt and light. Uh, so he says his, his Beatitudes people, right? The people who um, are of his kingdom, people, the blessed people of the kingdom of heaven, people who follow Jesus, they will live visibly distinct lives with him in this world, living for the good of the world, even though uh, in many ways we stand against the world for the world's good and can therefore, uh, since we stand against them, uh, we can often expect a hostile response from the world. So Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally good. And when it advances in a world that is full of sin and spiritual darkness, then those who belong to his kingdom will appear odd, to say the least. Uh, so when you, li- when you live publicly with God through faith in Jesus, the world will think you're strange. And that's okay because of your relationship with Jesus. He's the really strange one in this world, and we're, we're only strange by association with him. So uh, Jesus even seems strange to those who are supposed to be expecting him, right? So those uh, who were most familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the religious leaders of Israel, often represented by that phrase, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, right? These are the ones who are often on the scene uh, in the Gospels, and, uh, and they oppose Jesus, right? The scribes and Pharisees, they knew the scriptures very well, better than anyone, They tried more than anyone to keep all the commandments in the scriptures. And uh, they were the chief, you know, legal interpreters of the scripture, the teachers of Israel, instructing the people in the scriptures, teaching them about God, supposedly teaching them about God and about what life with him was supposed to be like. And these people didn't recognize Jesus. He was strange to them. They thought he was a false teacher. They thought he was speaking in his own authority, an innovator whose teachings threatened to undermine the scriptures, and they considered him to be their enemy. Jesus didn't fit at all with their biblical expectations of what they were expecting, you know, this Messiah who has been promised in the scriptures. <clears throat> he didn't fit. And that should be very troubling to us. Just that simple fact that the scribes and Pharisees didn't recognize Jesus as the one that the scriptures proclaimed. That should be very troubling to us because here we are, we're entrusting our souls to Jesus. We're worshiping Jesus. 
We're following him and proclaiming him to others. Saying that you can only have a relationship with God through faith in him. You can only know God because of Jesus. And the people who were supposed to know better than anyone all about the kingdom of heaven, the people who were supposed to recognize the Messiah, recognize God's king, they were convinced that Jesus was a fraud. They were convinced that he was a lawbreaker, that he didn't keep the scriptures, that he was a heretic who deserved to die, actually. So the legal experts said um, that Jesus' ministry and teaching ran contrary to God's law. That's what the legal experts said. And anyone interested in Jesus has to be concerned about that because they're legal experts. You know what? They're right about some things. Uh, At the end of this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As one who had authority rather than one, as a scribe does, who refers to authority. And that's seen in our passage when Jesus says in verse 18, truly I say to you. And then again in verse 20, I tell you. That just seems pretty innocuous to us when we read uh, passages, you know, little phrases like this. might not seem like a big deal. But for a teacher in Israel to speak this way was remarkable, it was unique, and they considered it dangerous, basically. uh, Potentially dangerous. So the teachers of Israel would uh, normally refer to their sources, to the authority from which they derived their teachings to show that what they were teaching was not their own novel innovation. But Jesus made many proclamations with this formula, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, I say to you. It's emphatic, I say. So he's being self-referential with regard to his authoritative teachings. He's referring to his own authority when he says things like this. So if you've watched the Mandalorian uh, Star Wars spin-off show on Disney+, Plus, maybe you are familiar with Nick Nolte's uh, little character, uh, Kuil. I don't know how I pronounce his name. Uh, he says, you know, we're going to do this or that. I have spoken. <laughs> you know, come with me. It's not up for debate. I have spoken. <laughs> you know, he says that. It's a strange phrase. It conveys this sense of unquestionable authority, like he's saying... I've just made the definitive statement. There's not going to be any debate about it. Right? Uh, there's something of that in the way that Jesus preaches. So uh, now in John's gospel, he makes it clear that he does nothing merely of his own authority, but that he speaks just as he's heard his father uh, teaching, his father in heaven. But there are clearly times when we see him exercising complete divine authority, uh, like when he demonstrates that he has the authority to forgive sins, and he demonstrates that by healing somebody, somebody who is uh, paralyzed, healing a paralytic. So Jesus claims authority. He exercises authority that belongs to God alone. And he speaks of this authority as if it is his. You know? And he teaches with this authority, not depending on other teachers, not depending on other traditions to lend himself credibility. <clears throat> Maybe uh, the scribes and Pharisees, We're right to have questions about that fact, right? To be maybe a little bit suspicious of anybody making such claims. But Jesus puts the suspicions to rest in our passage. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's no heretic. Jesus is no heretic. He's no false teacher threatening to undermine the scriptures. He comes with no novel, innovative 
message about life with God. He says uh, nothing that he says, nothing that he does is uh, contrary to God's word. Jesus has the highest view of the scriptures. He didn't come to do away with the scriptures or to contradict them. He came to fulfill God's word. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets here, it's a way of referring to all the Hebrew scriptures, uh, what we refer to um, now as the Old Testament, right? So the law, when he talks about the law, it's not just another way of saying, you know, commandments, a list of rules. Um, It's the the Torah, the five books of Moses. That's the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible. So those books aren't just a list of rules when you read them. They're made up of stories and poems and songs and the promises of God. Talking about his gracious work primarily. And the prophets, when he says the law and the prophets, uh, it refers to the rest of the biblical writings, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So sometimes you would mention that third category, the Psalms or the writings. But uh, to say the law and the prophets was just as good as basically referring to the, the whole of the scriptures, right? So Jesus is saying he came to fulfill the scriptures, not in any way to oppose them, undermine them, or abolish them, do away with them. Right? So John Stott said that the law and the prophets, namely the Old Testament, contain various kinds of teaching. The relation of Jesus Christ to these, to these various kinds of teaching, differs. But the word fulfillment covers them all. He fulfills all the various kinds of teaching. So it makes sense to us that someone would fulfill commandments. <clears throat> it makes sense to us that someone fulfill prophecy. Uh, but it seems a little bit strange to think of someone fulfilling historical writings or uh, fulfilling wisdom literature. But Jesus does. He fulfills all of these things in different ways. His relation to all the different scriptures that we find in the Old Testament are different, but he fulfills them all. He's kept all God's commandments. All of the good promises and prophecies of God's word are met in him. In him, the history of God's people is summed up. It's recapitulated and it's redeemed. He is the very wisdom of God. He's the personification and the embodiment of God's wisdom. He's the great prophet and priest and king that the scriptures speak about. He's the great atoning sacrifice that they set forth for our reconciliation to God. He's the true tabernacle. He's the real meeting place between God and his people. And he's the true righteous man. Jesus came to fulfill every page of the Hebrew scriptures, whether that page has something like an explicit reference to the coming king, or whether that page uh, only conveys this haunting feeling of desperate needs that are unmet, he fulfills it. And the fantastic thing is that he didn't just come to fulfill scriptures as a man. He did fulfill all the scriptures about this man that God had promised uh, would be our savior and our Messiah and our redeemer and king. But he also came to fulfill them as the God-man, as God himself fulfilling the scriptures. So he says, for truly I say to you, there it is uh, in verse 18 again, that self-referential divine authority. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law 
until all is accomplished. This reminds me of Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8, where it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The heavens and the earth shall pass away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The scriptures endure beyond creation itself. The scriptures endure beyond creation because they're not merely a part of this created world. The scriptures are not even a part of just heaven as a created place. The only thing that could outlast creation is God's word. It's God himself. The scriptures are divine in their inspiration. They're divine in their subject. The scriptures come from God. The scriptures point to God. They reveal the character of God. They reveal the nature of God to us. Even the actual laws, the commandments, when you're being told, to do this and not do this. The rules that we find in the scriptures, they reveal the character and the nature of God to us. The the righteous commandments and requirements of the law reveal who God is and what he is like. Not just what we're supposed to do. They reveal God to us. The scriptures are God's holy word, the God-centered word that will endure beyond the heavens and the earth. His words reveal his heart. And that is why David extolled their beauty and their value, the the beauty and value of God's word, as he did in Psalm 19, which Bill read from our Old Testament reading this morning. Nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more wonderful than coming to know God through his word. When Jesus says that he came to fulfill God's holy word, he's claiming to be the God who surpasses creation, who is the true and ultimate and everlasting focal point of the scriptures. Jesus does speak with his own authority. That is not in contradiction to the authority of the scriptures. His authority is identical to the authority of God's word. In fact, we might say that his authority here is the foundation of the authority of the Holy Scriptures. He doesn't just look to the Scriptures to lend his own words credibility. He lends credibility and authority to the Holy Scriptures with his words. He says, you don't have to worry about the Scriptures passing away. I say to you, they will not. He lends credibility and authority because he's the one speaking in the Scriptures. The Scriptures derive their authority from the God who speaks. And here he is, God in the flesh, speaking in his own authority, declaring that truly the scriptures will be fulfilled in him. These God-centered scriptures will be fulfilled in me. Of course his life won't be contrary to God's word. He is God's word, incarnate. Whenever the scriptures tell of the mighty works of God, they're speaking of Jesus. Whenever the scriptures tell what God will do, they speak of him. Whenever the scriptures tell of the character of God, they speak of him. Whenever the scriptures tell the story of God's redemption or uh, reveal the plan of salvation or proclaim the forgiving love of God or give us hope for our future with God, they speak of Jesus. Whenever the scriptures tell of what God requires of humans so that they may live with him in a relationship that endures beyond heaven and earth, what eternal life uh, with God looks like, they speak of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just keep the rules that are found in the Bible. He does that. But he's the culmination of all the revelation of the Holy Scriptures. 
Jesus is the God behind the scriptures. And he's the God with us who is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And this is why the scriptures are so beautiful to us, because they point us to him. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, because they point us to Jesus. This is written of the Old Testament, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what he's referring to. The Hebrew scriptures are so wonderful because they testify to Jesus as the one who will fulfill them all. So there's no conflict between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. There's no conflict there. There's not even a distinction. He's the same God of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear Jesus' voice, as you hear it in the Gospels, you're hearing the same voice of God as in the Old Testament. And uh, J.C. Ryle said that the Old Testament is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. So the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament sees him as having been manifested in the world. The religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, should have known to expect him. They should have recognized him. As those who were experts in the scriptures, who had devoted their lives to practicing and teaching what they found in the scriptures, they should have heard his voice and followed him and entered his kingdom. But they're not interested, actually, in what the scriptures truly revealed. That's what's exposed in their conflict with Jesus. They're not actually interested in what the scriptures reveal because they reveal Jesus. They're not interested in a real relationship with God by his grace, which is what Jesus came to give us. They were interested in, really turns out, a, a show of righteousness. Maybe, maybe just a show of righteousness. But God revealed their hypocrisy over and over again, and he exposed the fact, Jesus exposed the fact, that their hearts were far from God. So he'll go uh, on to talk more about this in the next sections of his sermon, how the religious leaders taught this really uh, merely external complaint external compliance with God's law, right? When God wanted a true obedience, a true righteousness from the heart, not just at the level of visible actions, but of invisible thoughts, real desires, right? But here, Jesus says again with that divine authority in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that probably... Uh, seemed like a stunning impossibility to anybody who heard it. Uh, how could someone's righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? They know the scriptures better than anyone. They try harder than anyone to keep all the commandments. And they interpret the scripture. They teach this to all the people. And in fact, Jesus makes the language here emphatic. He says, unless your righteousness far exceeds... Theirs. Unless your righteousness is much more abundant than theirs, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying that the scribes and Pharisees in general, uh, in general, not necessarily every individual among them, we do see uh, some of them, um, many of them even uh, coming to faith in Christ, but in general, because of their attitude toward the scriptures and attitude toward God that we see here in the Gospels, they're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're the most righteous people we can think of. They're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so much for whatever it is they want to call righteousness. Jesus is saying, 
the mere appearance of righteousness is no righteousness. And still, we feel at a loss, we feel despair of ever achieving much more abundant righteousness uh, than the scribes and Pharisees. If they were such failures, how can we have any true righteousness at all in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, to live with God in a real eternal relationship? The scriptures require something from us that we cannot fulfill. That's true. The scriptures require something from us that we cannot fulfill. It's a good thing Jesus said he came to fulfill the scriptures. That's what he says in our passage. By, by his grace, as our representative, he fulfills everything for us. All the righteous requirements of God's law, all the sacrifices and atonements that have been prescribed for our sin, for the forgiveness of our sin, all our purpose, all our victory, all our glorious destiny, everything. He f- fulfills it all on our behalf. The scriptures uh, tell a story of humanity being made right with God, and that's, that story is something that the God-man has fulfilled through his life and death and resurrection. That's not a story we can fulfill. It says in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. By the works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has redeemed our humanity. He's restored the relationship with God through his own righteousness, which is actually God's own righteousness. That's what this says, lived out in the human life. Jesus has redeemed us through his own fulfillment of all the scriptures, and he shares this righteousness, God's own righteousness, with us who believe, so that we are declared righteous with a righteousness that is not our own, that we could not possibly have attained on our own, a righteousness that is much more abundant than that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's through the gracious imputation of the divine righteousness of our representative, which he says is ours through faith. It's through our union with him. Right? Uh, so a couple weeks ago, uh, some of you know I was driving my car to Salem. Uh, I had Charlie Shaw with me. We we're going to go down to meet uh, Christopher Bechtel for lunch. Uh, he's the pastor of our PCA church down there. Uh, on I-5, uh, we blew a tire and had to pull over and change it right there on the side of the freeway with big semi-trucks like blasting by and rocking the, the car with the air of their passage every, every time something passes by, the whole thing's shifting. Uh, I have to admit, <clears throat> I had never changed a tire on the road like that before. I've changed tires before, okay, just in my garage. <laughs> uh, but not on the road, and Charlie could tell I was at a loss. Uh, I looked at him, and he could just see panic, I guess, in my face. <laughs> Uh, but he had confidence. He had confidence. Uh, in fact, he used to have the exact same car. And he knew where the tools were underneath the back seat. I had no idea there was a compartment underneath the back seat. He found the tools. Uh, he knew how to find the secret magical lever to release the uh, spare tire from underneath the back end of it. I had no idea. And he knew where to place the jack, how to unscrew the lug nuts in the proper order, because you don't want to do that wrong. <clears throat> he knew everything. And uh, one time, I was down on the ground, uh, fumbling with the tire iron, 
pretty much just staring at it, wondering what to do with it. <laughs> and, uh, and Charlie took some pictures. You might think he was taking pictures to make fun of me. He took some pictures and he said, this is great, you can show your kids and tell them how you changed the tire on your car. Super genuine. And, and when we were done, he clapped me on the back. He said, you did it, man. <laughs> he basically changed the tire for me and he gave me the credit for it. And that's something like what God does uh, for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're at a complete loss, you see the panic in our eyes. He takes on our flesh. He fulfills all righteousness for us. And he gives us the credit that was due to him. And he's the only one who deserves to live with God forever. But he imputes his own divine righteousness to us so that we also may enter the kingdom of heaven with him. And he says in verse 19, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so if you encounter the word of God and its righteous requirements and figure, you know, if, if anybody's got to fulfill these requirements, it's got to be me. And you realize that as a sinner, you can't do that, that it requires something that you can't fulfill uh, well, it's pretty normal for sinners to just, you know, sort of relax the requirements, believe that they don't really require what they require, right? To imagine that righteousness is more attainable than it really is. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. The righteous requirements of scriptures, they are exceedingly impossibly high, but the Lord Jesus has fulfilled them entirely on our behalf. He's done them and he's taught them, truly. So he is called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And now you have a new relationship with God in his name. Perfect fulfillment of his righteous requirements. It's not possible for you, but you have his spirit. And now you actually may begin to do them and even to teach them. You can have a word-centered life like Jesus because his life is alive in you through the spirit. As the promises say in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them, within my people, and I will write it on their hearts. Jesus has fulfilled these promises for us too, not just in being the spirit-filled man who has actually kept God's law, but by being the God-man who puts his own spirit in us to make us people who have his word in our hearts so that we can do them and teach them. We can take the Old Testament to heart and we can learn a lot from it about Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So we need to hear the Old Testament in light of their fulfillment in Christ even as the risen Lord himself taught his disciples in Luke 24, it, you know, it says that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Spirit helps you to have this word-centered life. The Spirit equips you to do God's word and to teach it in a Christ-centered way. And that's what Jesus has sent his disciples out to do in the Great Commission. Uh, he says at the end of this gospel in Matthew uh, chapter 28, this famous uh, Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the triune name of God, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? 
Go and do these commandments and teach them. Teach people about Jesus. His word will never pass away. Nothing could be more important than keeping and proclaiming his word, which will endure beyond heaven and earth, finding eternal life with God in our relationship with Jesus. Just being interested in that makes us strange to the world because of our association with the strange one himself, Jesus. Declaring Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures to other people would probably make us irritating to a lot of people. When we tell the mighty works of God that culminate in Jesus, when, when we show how God's promises are met in him, when we hold forth his divine righteousness as the way, the only way for believers to enter the kingdom of heaven, then we'll be the salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. And he says that'll be good for the world. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, by the prophets, you've spoken um, at many times and in many ways, but ultimately, you have spoken by your Son. He is your voice. He speaks with your own divine authority, and he is the true fulfillment of your word. He is your word. When, when he reveals, uh, what, what he reveals to us about you is beautiful and wonderful, because he reveals you to be a God who would share his righteousness with the unrighteous. He reveals you to be a God who would save us from our sins and bring us into a kingdom that we didn't deserve. You've made yourself known, and truly it has been for our good. And so we pray that you would help us to proclaim your word and make you known to yet others. Help us to be so captivated by the word of the gospel of Jesus, so compelled by your spirit that we can't help but teach it with all thanksgiving, with all humility, with all wisdom, and with all love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.